been going through a sermon series called Raised, Doubting the Resurrection. Um, we're now jumping back into Galatians. We've kind of been working through this letter, and uh, we find ourselves this morning in Galatians chapter 3. Um, I had a person approach me uh, after service um, once and, um, you know, thanked me for the sermon and shook my hand and, and, um, and then said, you know, I'm just kind of curious. When, when, I've been around here for a while. When, when are you going to start teaching something other than the gospel? Um, when are you going to start teaching people to obey? And um, I tried to explain that, uh, that in my perception, you never get past the gospel, right? Tim Keller said it great when he said, uh, you know, the, the gospel is not the ABC of Christianity. It is the A to Z, right? I mean, it's, it's really not about getting beyond the gospel. It's about going more deeply into the gospel. I tried to explain that. She's like, yeah, but when are you going to get into the meat of the word? I mean, when are you, when are you really going to, like, she's like, I just want to be in a church that takes holiness seriously. I said, yeah, me too. <laughs> I do too. Here's the thing, you guys. At the heart of this tension, at the heart of this tension is a question that has plagued the church from the beginning. Um, it plagued the, uh, the Galatian church, and um, it plagues the church today. And that very simply is a question. How do people change? How do people change? Because we all know we need to change. <laughs> right? If you've become a follower of Jesus, I, I think you know that connected with believing in Jesus is the fact that Jesus is going to change you, that, that there are certain things you were saved from and certain things you were saved to, and that requires change. The question is, is how is that change embraced and enacted in our lives? What does it look like, right? So Paul is, is wrestling with that question really throughout this letter to the Galatians and, and in this chapter specifically. Um, I'm going to let you know that, that we're kind of in the, the, the deep water of Galatians. Typically what Paul does is he will begin by teaching doctrine and then moving from that to talk about practice. So he begins by saying, believe this, and then he moves on to saying, do this. We are in the believe this section of the letter. We're in the doctrine side of the letter, which means that, that um, you know, it's challenging to preach because it's more teachy than preachy, but I feel an obligation to really dig into the text. And, and as we do so, um, I'm just going to ask you to, to hang, right, um, and stick, because I really believe that as we come to understand Paul's thinking here, it's going to have profound impacts in the way that we live our Christian lives um, and in the way that we um, move into freedom. And so um, as we move through these next couple of weeks, um, hang, I mean, stick with it and, and focus, because we're going to be answering some key questions, right? Like, how do we actually change? Uh, a question of no small significance, right? But other questions like, um, you know, what do we do with the Ten Commandments? Why did God give a law? And, and, and how are we supposed to relate to that law? Like when we go to the Old Testament or when we talk about Ten Commandments being posted in public space or, or we start talking about how um, God works, what, how does this all tie together and, and how, what does it connect, how does it connect to my heart? Here's the central thesis we're going to be unpacking this morning and, and over the next couple of weeks, and I think it's the central thesis in this letter, and this is very simply this. Religion is the most dangerous thing to the human soul. And, and I'm going to define religion very specifically as our effort for God. 
We, we all have a default mode of the human heart, and that default mode, when everything goes crazy, you know what I'm talking like when your computer goes bad and you plug it in and you reset it, it goes back to default mode. The default mode of the human heart is religion, which means we go back to working for God instead of resting in how God has worked for us. We go back to trying to impress God or to earn things from God as opposed to resting in and delighting in what God has done to earn for us. Um, and that is uh, as a default mode of the, the sinful human heart. Um, I don't care if you've been a believer for a week, a year, 15 years. This is going to continue to be a struggle for you. So as we unpack this, I hope that you're going to see that, that ultimately um, what Paul is calling out is, is the religious nature of our hearts. And, and I believe that in many ways, religion is the worst sin of the human heart. Because what we're doing is, is taking our effort and substituting it for God's and claiming we can do what only Jesus has done to claim what only Jesus can give. We seek to be our own saviors. We seek to be our own gods. And it is in the name of God, replacing God with our glory, our work, um, and our behavior. So we're going to dig into our text. Those are some of the ideas that we're digging into. Okay? Take a look at verse 1. Keep your Bibles open because we're going through this text, right? We're, we're going to hit this thing. Verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's a great start. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul in Galatians is excited about the gospel, right? The gospel is good news. He's lit up by the good news, but he is not in a good mood. Um, because people are coming in to Galatia uh, to steal away his spiritual children, right? He had labored to plant this church. He had invested his life into this, this young church to, to establish them with the gospel. And, he, and right there in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. These other people come in with this other message. And man, I did my best to ground you in the gospel of grace. And you are so quickly turning away. So he's not in a good mood because his children are under attack, and it's not a benign attack, right? These attacks, if they're successful, can rob the Galatians of the power of their salvation, the joy they have in Christ, and ultimately the gospel's ability to spread through them to transform their community. This is no small thing. And so he's basically showing up, and he starts out by saying, oh, foolish Galatians, Phillips is an old-time Bible translator, and I love the way he translated this verse. He's like, Paul's looking at them going, my dear idiots, you know, really? My dear idiots, who has bewitched you? Who has put this spell on you that you have lost the clarity that the gospel gives? That you're now like walking in a fog and, you, and, you're, and you're stumbling on the clarity of grace, right? Verses 2 and 3. He goes on, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This is the central question of our passage, and in many ways, the central question of this entire letter. Because at the heart of this, how are you perfected? How are you changed as a follower of Jesus. We all know we're supposed to change. We all know there's supposed to be life change. How are we actually supposed to engage it? You ever been frustrated with your spiritual growth? 
Have you ever been frustrated with your own ability to do what you know you're supposed to do, to be what you know you're supposed to be? Have you ever been frustrated with your lack of joy when you know that the scripture talks about it being joy, right? Jesus said, I'm like the fountain of life. You ever wondered why the fountain of life isn't flowing in your life? You're not overflowing with joy. You're not experiencing all the blessings described in the scripture. And how do you deal with that frustration as you wrestle with that tension? Here's the thing. Paul in these verses is comparing two different ways to approach change in our lives. Two different ways to try to manifest that change in our lives. The first is by the flesh and the other is by the spirit. How do you become more spiritual? And the implied answer very simply is through the work of the spirit. Could, do you really think you can accomplish becoming more spiritual through efforts of the flesh? Do you really think you can do better than God at changing you, perfecting you, modifying you, freeing you? The answer is yes. We do it all the time, right? And the false teachers are actually coming in and teaching that very thing. What they're essentially saying is, it's a good thing you believed in Jesus. That's awesome. That's a great start. But to become a varsity Christian, you want to graduate from the JV to the varsity, man, you need to start obeying these rules. Right? If you ever want to make any advancement in your Christian life, if you ever really want to become, like, experience this significant life change, you need to start obeying these rules. And I'm going to tell you how. First of all, you need to be circumcised. And second of all, you need to obey the law. That was the message they brought in. Circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And they were like, look, Abraham, man, father of, of, of our religion, right? You go all the way back. You want to be like Abraham? You want to experience the blessing promised to Abraham? Well, then you need to be circumcised like Abraham. You really want to walk in a way that glorifies God? You really want to be serious about holiness? You better obey these rules, right? There's, there's 600 and some odd, and here's 10. We call the Ten Commandments, right? The representation of it. You need to obey these things. If you really want to be a real Christian, believe in Jesus and obey these rules. All right, you guys, the bottom line is there is a tension. God does want to change us. I don't want to be, I don't want to be vague on that, right? You became a believer in Jesus, and God doesn't want to leave you as you were, he saved you from who you were to change you into who you're supposed to be, and he, he is going to change you. The fundamental question, though, is how He is going to actually enact that change. And at the heart of this tension is the tension between what we call justification and sanctification. These are $10 theological words, and, and some of you are like, oh, yeah, I got those. Great. Stick with me while I explain them. Um, but I want to unpack them a little bit so we understand what we're talking about, right? Because when He says, look, in... Um, in verse 3, when he says, having begun by the Spirit, that's our justification, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's sanctification. Let's unpack this. Justification, first of all. Justification is a word used throughout the New Testament to describe a legal declaration from God that basically says, you are right. You measure up. There's no fault found in you, Right? What it's saying is, is, here's a standard. And when that gavel, and that, uh, that, that, that legal gavel comes down and says you are justified, what it's saying is there's nothing in you that doesn't measure up. To be justified by God is a pretty significant thing because his standard's fairly high. He is the measure of all that is right and holy and good. And so to be justified by God is, of course, the greatest justification, and in fact, the greatest gift we can ever be given. To be declared right by God. You are as righteous as Jesus. 
right? You are as right as Christ. There is no flaw. I see no flaw in you. The challenge, though, is that we all know we're not justified. We look at our own hearts and we know that, that, that we don't measure up, right? Take a look at these verses, Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody can identify with that. We've all rebelled against God. We have all placed ourselves at the center. We've all put our kingdom ahead of God's kingdom. We've all looked to things that weren't God to be God for us. We've all sinned. And as a result, we fall short of that standard, that perfect standard that, that in fact, we are expected to measure up to, the glory of God, right? We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are justified. How? By His grace as a gift. The gavel comes down and says, you are right. I declare you to be right. The sovereign God of the universe looks at you, somebody who's ungodly and says, you're godly. Somebody who's unrighteous and says, you are righteous. It's, a, it's, a, it's an act of grace, undeserved favor that is given to you as a gift. So where's the justice in that? How can God be the just judge of the universe and yet declare the unrighteous righteous? the ungodly, godly. Well, he can do it because his son paid the price of our judgment, right? It says it's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption is an economic term that means to buy out from. It came from the Roman slave market. And when someone was redeemed from the slave market, someone paid their ransom, right? So Jesus paid our ransom. He paid our redemption price through his blood. He became our substitute and died the death we deserve to die and rose again in new life when that payment was complete, right? So as a result of his payment, God can now say, I'm satisfied with the judgment of Jesus, so I give to you his righteousness. I gave your sin to him. I gave his righteousness to you. And I bring the gavel down with an official declaration. One time for all, you are righteous. You are justified. Justification is the greatest gift God can give to sinful mankind. Because what it means is this. It's, it's very simply this. It's, it's just as if I have never sinned. It is just as if I have always obeyed. That's what justification means. It is just as if I have never sinned, just as if I have always obeyed. Why? Because my record is no longer my own. Christ took it and paid for it. And His record has been given to me. Justification, the sovereign judge of the universe, declares it to be true. And when God declares it to be true, there's nobody who can question it. So this explains why Jesus had to die and rise again, right? He had to do it because we didn't measure up, and, and, and as a result, He was our substitute and was judged in our place. So justification is about what God does for us. Sanctification is about what God does in us as a result of our justification, Sanctification is the process of change that results from my justification, where God actually changes me to be what He's already declared me to be, right? When I'm justified, God declares, you are right. You're no longer defined by who you were or what you've done. You're now defined by who Jesus is and what He's done, right? But there's a huge gap between who He's declared me to be and who I actually am right? I mean, I know who I was, and I know who he says I now am, and there's a huge gap, right? And so there's a process where he's changing me from who I was into who I will be. 
That's sanctification, the process of change that results from my justification, right? Romans 6, 22 and 23 says this, but now you have been set free. That now means justified, right? So when you believe in Jesus, when you respond to the invitation of the gospel and you trust Christ, you believe in Jesus, you're set free from sin, from the consequence of sin and ultimately from the power of sin, and someday in the future even from the presence of sin, right? You have been set free from sin, and you've now become slaves to God. You're like, that doesn't sound great. I don't want to be anybody's slave. Well, what you have to realize is that you're always a slave. The question is, whose slave you're going to be? No, dude, I like to be free. I like to do whatever I want to do. Well, you're not asking the right question. The right question isn't, do you get to do what you want to do? The real question is, is do you know why you want to do what you want to do? See, it's not enough that you get to just do what you want to do. You have to ask why you have those desires to begin with. What's enslaving and leading your desires? See, if that was actually the definition of freedom, a heroin addict would be the most free when they have an unlimited supply of heroin. They want it and they have an unlimited supply to completely indulge. And we're like, no, that's absolute slavery because it's their desires controlled by something that is going to destroy them. Here's the thing. Something's always leading your desires. The real question is, what's leading it? Is it going to lead you to life or lead you to death? The gift of justification is that God begins the process of freeing our slavery to sin, which essentially means we're being freed from our addiction to things that don't give life or being freed to a life that is anchored in God instead the giver of life, the source of life, the one who gives us everything we were designed to have. Slavery to God is the greatest gift given to mankind because it realigns our desires with what truly fulfills, right? So now you've been set free from sin. You've become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. What does that mean, the fruit you get? The fruit of what? The fruit of your new relationship with God. As a result of your new relationship with God, there's a a natural fruit that grows out of that exchange of life where you're coming and loving God and God loves you. There's a fruit that comes out of that and it leads to your sanctification, to your progressive change in the Christian life, where you're being changed from who you were in your slavery to sin to who he has declared you to be in your freedom in Christ, right? To its end, eternal life. So you're on this spectrum, you guys. You were, you were born in sin, right? We know that. It's no insult to our parents. It's just speaking of the condition of our, of our souls, right? We, we all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's where we start. When we believe in Jesus, the end result is that we have eternal life. And there's a spectrum of change that takes place in between where God is changing us from who we were into who we will be. Now, eternal life, you guys, I want you to think about it this way. Eternal life is not primarily about a length of time. Everybody's going to live forever. God designed us to be eternal beings. The real question is not whether or not you'll exist forever, but whether or not you'll be connected to the source of life forever. Eternal life is not about a length of time. It's about a quality of existence. The gift of eternal life is that you have been given the gift of of existing eternally connected to the source of life, the thing that makes life worth living joy and purpose and fulfillment, right? God, once again, at the center. Eternal life is a quality of life that is worth living for all eternity. So God is changing us from our slavery to sin to our, um, our, our freedom in Christ to the joy of our salvation. And that thing takes place 
um, over the course of, of our lives, right? As he's, as he's changing us. For the, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? So he's freeing us from the wages of sin. The paycheck of, of our labor um, for our own freedom is always death, separation from God and the things that truly fulfill. The free gift of God in comparison is life. Like life, man. Life worth living. Life that is satisfying and joyful and full of purpose. Life that is vibrant and alive, right? So God is changing us to experience more of what we already have in Christ. So He wants to free us, and that is the process of sanctification. And the tension is this, you guys. Sanctification is messy, it is progressive, it is slow. And as a result, a lot of times the best we can say is, I'm not what I once was, but I am not what I will be. I look at my life right now as a follower of Christ, as somebody who's been following Jesus for 25 years, and I see a lot of areas where I just am not doing incredibly well. I see a lot of areas where, honestly, you'd think, man, 25 years following Jesus, dude, you should be like way beyond that. No. I'm not what I once was, though. I mean, I can absolutely tell you that, man. I have changed. There have been ways that I am more free than I used to be. I have greater clarity about what joy is. I have experienced more of life, right? I'm not what I once was, but I'm not what I will be. There are areas of my life where I still desperately want to be free, where I desperately want to change, and it's hard. Like, I wrestle with this stuff. I get frustrated with this stuff. Like, I'll go to the guys that, that, I'm, that are my accountability partners, you know how humiliating it is to have to confess the same sin over and over and over and over again? You ever been there? Where you're just like sick of it to the point where you're like, I'm not going to confess this week because I'm so sick of confessing the same thing, you know? I'm just going to keep it to myself, which by the way is pride, and pride is the enemy of grace, right? But can you relate with that? Is that something you've experienced? Here's the thing, with what we're talking about is the sanctification process is slow, it is messy, it is hard, it is progressive. And sometimes it feels like it's two steps forward and four steps back. Sometimes you feel like, holy cow, I'm worse than I was when, when I became a believer. I'm a bigger sinner than I was. You ever been there? When you realize the reality is you're not. See, God doesn't show you all your sin at one time. If He did, you'd be devastated. You are more sinful than you fear. What he does, he brings in a little bit of light at a time, shows us a little bit more. And as he does, he's doing it because he's inviting us into freedom in that area, right? It would be overwhelming for him to simply bring it all in at once. He says, this is the area I want you to to change in now. I'm going to bring some light in. I'm going to show you. And there are times when, honestly, you feel like you're like, you you thought when you became a believer, you were in like 10th grade, and, and now you're like in third grade in the Christian life, right? The reality is you're just more aware of things in your life that were already there and were there the whole time. And God, by His grace, is bringing them to your attention so that He can grow you through them. There is a purpose to the suffering. In other words, there's a sanctifying purpose for the sin in your life. God uses your sin to grow you. He uses what He hates to produce what He loves. And He will, in fact, reveal areas of struggle in your life and then say to you, I'm going to grow you through this. There are going to be times where he's going to allow you to struggle. You're like, man, that doesn't sound cool. He's allowing you to struggle so you'll grow, right? 
He doesn't, he wants you to, and we're going to unpack this, he wants you to become dependent in this process. God has a desire to lead us through this mess. The challenge is this, when things get really messy, when it feels like I'm going backwards, when it feels like I'm not making progress, when it feels like people are looking at me and they're saying, dude, you're not spiritual, right? And everyone else seems to be growing so much faster than me. I'm looking around going, holy cow, these guys are like followers of Jesus for two minutes and they're more spiritual than I am and I've been like 20 years. I better like pretend. I better work harder. I better apply myself. See, what ends up happening is is I start looking at my justification through my sanctification. In other words, I look at my progress in Christ and I start judging my status with Christ. Does that make sense? Like, like, I seem not to be growing very much. I wonder if I'm even a Christian. I don't seem to be growing very much. I wonder if he's even real. There's not very much life change going on in my life right now. So we, we, we approach our justification through our sanctification, which reality is we're supposed to go the opposite way. No matter how much you struggle, does that change the fact that God has declared you right? No. Did he know all your sin before he declared you right? Yes. Did Jesus die for all your sin, past, present, and future? And did he rise again, proving the payment was complete? Yes. So that allows us to struggle with hope. That allows us not to be condemned when we're being convicted of sin. There are times God's going to say, I want you to change this thing. That's not condemnation. That's not judgment. That's not rejection. That's God saying, I'm going to move you into freedom. And we have to keep reminding ourselves that we've already been declared right. We've already been declared by the sovereign God of the universe as holy as Jesus. That allows us to struggle without turning it into a work we're doing to try to impress God, but instead allows us to struggle knowing that ultimately it's a work that God is doing in us for the glory of God. You know, a lot of times, honestly, I think we think we have a date with God and we got to fix ourselves up. It's like, man, I got I to gotta make myself attractive. I'm really not doing real well right now. I better get to church. I'm not doing real great. I better open my Bible and read. I better spend a little bit of time in prayer. I, my, my life's not going really well, so I better start doing these things, right? And we end up looking like a little kid that got loose with the makeup counter. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm going to make myself pretty for God. And it doesn't work. You know what I'm saying? Like, you don't have enough perception to even know how to put on the makeup. And the reality is whatever makeup you put on is not going to be attractive to God. Because here's the thing, you guys. God's not waiting for you to make yourself like Jesus. God is waiting for you to trust in Jesus, to rest in Jesus, to delight in Jesus' love for you. Do you see the difference? See, religion says work harder, do better. Faith says, Christ did it all, and I'm secure, and I can rest. I'm free. We simply don't know how to fix ourselves. We don't have the ability to do it. God can do it through His Spirit, and that's really what we're going to dig into in our text. So we got this established, justification, sanctification. Justification, what God does for us in declaring us right, Sanctification, what God does in us in changing us to be um, what He's already declared us to be 
because of the work of Jesus. So back to our text, verses 3 through 6. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, having been justified? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Is sanctification really about your work for God? I don't think so. Verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplied the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Essentially, he's calling to their previous experience, and he's saying, think about the most significant things that have happened in your life. The biggest miracles that have happened in your life were those things that you did for God or things God did for you. And I think universally, people are going to come to the table and say, holy cow, they were things God did for me, right? He's like, that's the way it works. Verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. All right, let me give you some context. And this is where we start getting a little bit technical, but, but stick with me, okay? The false teachers who were coming into Galatia were basically saying, be circumcised, obey the law, right? That's, that was their message. Believe in Jesus, that's a good start, but be circumcised, obey the law. Be circumcised to become a son of Abraham or a daughter of Abraham, the father of blessing. Obey the law because that came through Moses, and that's how we please God is by obeying all of these rules. So, so Paul's going to actually take their arguments and dismantle them a little bit. First of all, he says, look, you want to be a, um, you want to be a, 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 a son of Abraham? Um, well, remember how Abraham became a son of God. Verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's a quote from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. God basically came to Abraham and said to him, look, I'm going to bless all the world through you. I am going to bless you and bless the world through you. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. How was Abraham saved? By believing the good news given to him. How are we saved? By believing the good news given to us. The message was a little bit different, but it's the same messenger, and at heart, the same message, right? Abraham was just given the message before Jesus came. We're given the message after he came. Abraham was declared right or accounted righteous before God by faith. Right? What's interesting is that that happened in Galatians chapter 15. He wasn't circumcised until Galatians chapter 17. He became a believer years before he was circumcised. And essentially what he's saying, what Paul is saying is, is look, really? Circumcision? Circumcision came later, right? And it was a symbol. The reality was his faith. If you want to know what's important about Abraham, you need to pay attention to what came first. And that was his faith. Verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Hmm. It's not about physical lineage. It's not about your DNA. It's not about your family. It's not about whether your family was a Christian family or went to church or, or were religious. Those may be great blessings, but if you want to be justified, if you want to have a relationship with God, there's only one way to do that, and that's to believe in Jesus, right? In the same way Abraham. Know then that it's those who have faith that are sons of Abraham. He's the father of faith and, and, and our example for how to have a relationship with God, and we do that by simply believing that, that, that God is right, and then when He gives a promise, He'll fulfill it, right? So to trust in Jesus, ultimately. Verses 8 and 9, and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then it, those, it is those who are of faith who are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let me, let me kind of unpack this a little bit. 
The Jewish teachers are coming in and basically saying, look, God has blessed the world through the Jewish nation. You need to become part of our culture. They were mistaking their cultural convictions for issues of holiness. You need to be like us to be accepted like us, right? So that means you need to be circumcised and obey our laws. We do the same thing today, not with circumcision and, and the Mosaic law, but we may do it with you need to dress like us and act like us and use the same language as us. You need to, you know, you got to be religious like us if you want to be accepted by God like us, right? And what God is saying is, is look, it's not a matter of, of your physical DNA. Abraham became a believer before there were any Jews on the earth. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was renamed Israel and had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Was Abraham a Jew or a Gentile when he became a believer? He was a Gentile. There were no Israelites on earth yet, right? He was a Gentile. Not only that, God said to him, all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. You know what the word Gentile means? Nations. It means everybody who's non-Jewish. So God was promising to Abraham as the father of Gentiles and Jews that the entire world would be blessed through him, Gentiles and Jews. So Paul is technically disassembling the arguments of these false teachers by saying, look, the scripture makes it very, very clear that God's purpose was not to create a subgroup of people defined by these specific behaviors, but to create a new humanity defined by their faith. In Jesus. So, <laughs> circumcision, not the right way to go, right? But it gets worse. Take a look at verses 10 through 12. All right, so they said, get circumcised and obey the law. What about the law? Verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. All right, what he's saying here essentially is this. You were wrong about circumcision, you're wrong about the law. You're saying obey these laws to impress God. The problem is law and, and, and grace don't go together. See, law says do this and you'll earn something from God. Grace says you can't earn anything from God, receive it freely. Two total, it's like oil and water. They don't go together. As soon as you say you have to earn it from God, you are now uh, nullifying the power of grace. The law says it's a wage. Now, you guys, let me ask you something. How much of your life is spent actually being governed by law? How often do you do what you do because you feel like God may not be happy with you or this is what's going to earn God's favor for you? Man, I better go to church. You know, that's what good Christians do. I better read my Bible. I better pray. Or, or man, I, I just haven't been a very good Christian lately. I better become more Christian. And what you mean by that is I'm going to start doing more moral things and stop doing those immoral things. And the whole while, the motivation behind it is that you think when you do good things, God loves you more. And when you do bad things, you think God loves you less. That's law. And it brings you under the curse. Because as soon as you start performing for God, you've already failed. See, the Bible says that if you fail in one point of the law, you are guilty of the entire law. 
If you're going to actually try to perform for God's acceptance, realize that the only measure acceptable to God is absolute perfection. Are you ready for that? Because you're not going to make it. You're like, that, dude, that doesn't sound fair. Doesn't God grade on curve? No, <laughs> he doesn't. I mean, think about it. How do you do? I mean, there's 600 or 400 and some odd commandments in the Old Testament, right? Represented by the 10 commandments. Surely we can do 10, right? Have no other God before me. How are you done with that one? Have you ever looked to something that wasn't God to be God for you or to do for you what only God can do? A relationship, a job, an achievement? Yeah. How about honor your mother and your father? First commandment with promise that you may live long and, and, and have rich life on the earth. How are you doing with that? You ever had a bad thought about your parents? Said a bad thing about them? You shall not commit adultery. Hey, I haven't done that. Really? Have you ever had a lustful thought? Because Jesus said, it's not just about your behavior, it's about the intents of your heart. Have you ever had the intent of adultery in your heart? Have you ever lusted after someone in your heart? If you're guilty of one, you're guilty of all. And that brings the absolute, infinite curse of God. See, when we try to perform for God, we bring ourselves back under the curse. And the curse ultimately is death. You want to know why so many religious people are walking around looking like they were baptized in lemon juice? Why they have absolutely no joy in their life? Why they have no power? Why they're just frustrated? They're walking around saying, put on your Sunday best. Meanwhile, they're dying inside. You want to know why? Because they're trying to live their life by the power of the law, and it is unleashing death. They're just living by the curse. They're performing for God instead of resting in God. And that's what Paul's argument is. Basically, look, you guys, you want to live by the law? It's going to bring a curse, man, because that's what it does. The law shows you how far you fall short. It doesn't give you power to measure up. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. So the, the law that the teachers are so desperately trying to get them to obey is something that ultimately can only bring death. Verses 13 and 14 are Paul's climactic conclusion of this section. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's from Deuteronomy And the Jews literally thought that. Anybody who was actually dead and hung up on a tree, that was a sign that they were actually cursed by God. So if they they killed somebody in in execution and they wanted to make it very, very clear that they were cursed by God, they would actually take their dead bodies and hang them publicly. When Jesus was hanged on the cross, one of the reasons that Paul found it so abhorrent that Jesus could ever be the Messiah was that he died on a cross. He was hanged on a tree. And that that was... Right there in the Bible, it says anybody who's hanged on a tree is cursed. He had no concept for understanding the fact that he was cursed as a substitute for sinful humanity. Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we, that is Jews and Gentiles together, Paul speaking as a Jew here, that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The climactic conclusion, very simply, is this. 
you can stop performing because Jesus performed for you. He took the curse of the law so that you could receive the blessing of the promise of Abraham, which is the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and resides within you. And it's a very different way to live, to live by the Spirit as opposed to live by the flesh. It's, it's revolutionary, right? He removed the curse so that we could live in the Spirit. Now, we're going to unpack this more as we go through this letter. When you get into the later parts of Galatians, like Galatians chapter 5, man, Paul just unpacks the beauty of what it means to, to live by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to, to live your life uh, with, the, with the fruit of the Spirit, right? We're not going to get into all that this morning. We're going to unpack some of that later. But I want you to understand that this is the fundamental key to understanding all spiritual change. Do you want to know how to change? Do you want to know how to become free in your Christian life? Do you want to know how to become more of who God has declared you to be, to experience more life, more joy, more freedom, and more power? It comes through relationship, not through performance. It comes by being loved by God in such a way that it actually frees you to love God in return. That will change you. See, the law is all about conforming your behavior. Start doing this and stop doing that. It tries to change you from the outside in, and it never succeeds. The best it can do is create a cage around the behavior. The Spirit changes you from inside out because love transforms your heart in a way that the law could never transform your behavior. You guys catch this, because this is like incredible when I got this. God is not concerned with you sinning less. He's concerned with you loving God more. Religion is all about sinning less. It's all about doing the right things and stop doing the wrong things, and then maybe God will like you more. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is God loves you and wants you to love Him in return. And He wants to change you by loving you so that you become freely, humbly dependent and joyful in Him. All real change comes as the result of relationship. It makes all the difference, right? Here's the thing. Somebody who, who's religious can stop doing some sinful behavior, stop looking at porn or, or stop going getting drunk on the weekends or, or whatever it is, right? And somebody being led by the Spirit can do the same exact thing, stop looking at porn or, or stop getting drunk on the weekends. What makes the difference, though, all the difference is the motivation behind the actions because the one is performing for acceptance, the other is responding to love. It's like in a marriage relationship. If, if you were to simply continually perform for your spouse and at the end of the day say, aren't you impressed with me? You now owe me. How would that work for you? <laughs> you like that? Your husband works all day and then shows up at the end of the night. Yeah, you owe me. Right? They don't value you. They don't treasure you. They don't love you. They're performing for you to use you. That's what we do to God. And what God is saying is, I love you, and I want you to respond to my love, and that will change you. The motivation makes all the difference. It's not the behavior. It's the motivation behind it. If you want to know what it means to truly, truly be changed, you have to know what it means to truly, truly be loved. 
Have you tasted the love of God like that? Have you understood what it means that the Holy One of God became a curse for you? He loved you that much. That He became your substitute, that He laid down His life. That the God of the universe, in order to deliver you from your sin, became a person just like you and then died the death you deserve to die so that He might invite you in to a new life you could never earn and never deserve. See, that's what holiness is, you guys. When we talk about, man, are we, are we a church that's serious about holiness? I sure hope so. Holiness is not about us sinning less. It's about us loving God more. It's about us being released to power and joy and freedom, not about us molding ourselves to some external expectations. It's about love changing our hearts. Some of you are going to hate this. All of us are going to hate it sometimes. Some of you are going to really hate it. Because you're like, Steve, that, that, that's too messy. Give me a list, man. Give me some rules to obey. Give me some guidelines, some guardrails, right? I like to measure up. I like to perform. I like to work hard, right? And what you're telling me is, is when I'm working for God, I'm actually working against God. Don't do that to me, man. Give me some rules to obey. Let me give you a little glimpse into your heart. A lot of times the reason you like rules is because you're driven by pride. You don't like to be helpless. You don't mind a little bit of help, but that's all you want. It's like, I got this. I just need a little bit of help, but I got this. Give me the rule. Give me a little bit of help, and I'll get there. When the gospel says you are desperately, desperately helpless, you can't do this. You can't perform for God. you realize that? You can't change yourself. You can't stop sinning. You can't conquer that sin that's plaguing you. You can't. And it's not because you're a sinner. It's because you're a human. Do you think Adam and Eve walked around independent of their relationship with God performing for him? No, the freedom of the first parents was the fact that they were utterly, completely dependent on God for everything, but they didn't resent it. Their humility freed them to utter dependence on God. And in utter dependence on God, God performed for them. And He got the glory. When Jesus said, you can do nothing apart from me, He wasn't exaggerating. I think a lot of times we take Jesus' words and we're like, yeah, that kind of may be true some of the time. He says, you can't do anything apart from me. The Bible says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. Corpses can't do much. So what makes you think you can change yourself, that you can perform for God, that you can make yourself better, that you can do this? You can't. The invitation of the gospel is an invitation to utter and complete helplessness and dependence on God. And the only thing that is going to free you to let God be God is when your heart knows that He loves you unconditionally. Otherwise, you will fearfully and pridefully continue to try to grab hold of control, to do for God, to perform, to make yourself better, to somehow claim or grab or become the center. We're dependent, you guys. We were designed to be dependent. And the gift of the gospel is the gift of dependency. It allows us once again to say, God, you're God. So how does that work and change? 
right? I'm struggling with a sin. I can't, like this guy had this sin that I've been confessing forever and I'm having a really hard time actually repenting and getting free from. How does that work? Don't I have to perform there? Mm, no. No. You have to rest better. Right? When you get how dependent you are, you're going to spend more time crying out to God to do for you what you can't do for yourself. You're going to spend more time saying, God, I can't do this. I'm helpless, and it's killing me. Will you please set me free? See, that's a cry of faith as opposed to, God, I want to do this for you. I feel compelled to perform for you. Won't you just give me a little bit of help? One is the cry of humility. The other is the the call of pride. One brings blessing. One brings curse. Not eternal curse because you're justified in Christ but helplessness that will leave you in the effects of death. You guys, this is um, very simple and very, very, very complex. But my call to you this morning is not to follow 10 easy steps to following Jesus. My call to you is not to make yourself more moral. My call to you is not to identify all the areas in your life where you're not measuring up and make a list and do better. My call to you this morning is to believe in Jesus. To renew your faith in the God who loves you. To so fill your vision with God's love for you that you are moved to love God in response and to trust God. And in that place of helpless, joyful dependence and trust to bring God everything that is broken, everything that's not working right, everything that is causing you shame or guilt or or pain, And to say to God, only you can fix this. And I trust you to do it. I'm going to rest. I'm going to rest. I'm going to stop fighting, stop working, stop striving. I'm going to rest. You love me as I am. You love me enough not to leave me as I am. And I'm so utterly dependent, all I can do is wait. And God will meet you in that place. And you will taste freedom. And you will begin to experience joy. And you will start to understand the power of the Spirit. Believe in Jesus. You'll never hear me up here saying, once you commit your life to Christ, or you'll never hear me up here calling you to rededicate your life to Jesus. I think that language is fundamentally misleading. It's not about you committing your life to anything. It's about the fact that Christ committed his life to you. You are never set free by rededicating your life as if what was called for was a renewed effort of your will. What is required is a renewed awareness of his dedication to you. I am not calling you to once again work hard. I am calling you to the exact opposite, to rest. Rest and trust that God's love will do for you what your effort cannot do. You guys, as we move into a time of response, I'm going to ask you to spend some time reflecting on some questions. Very simply, and create some space for God and think about these. Does God's love break your heart? 
to love God in return, to love others? Does God's love break your heart? Because I want you to catch this. If, if It doesn't matter how moral you are, how religious you are, how much you've performed. If God's love doesn't break your heart, you haven't started yet. You haven't even started yet. Did God's love break your heart when you believed and have you grown cold in your love for God? Have you become less responsive to his love and more focused on performance? I call you to renew your love, not as a work for God, but as a response to God. Fill your vision with God's love for you to a point that you respond in love for God. Secondly, will you allow your helplessness to drive you to greater dependence instead of harder work? those areas in which you feel helpless to help yourself, where you feel weak, will you allow those things to drive you in humility to the God who can deliver you, to the God who can change you, to the God who loves you, instead of pridefully driving you to perform and hide for God? Thirdly, where is God convicting you you need to change? If you're a follower of Jesus, there is an area, (laughs) I guarantee it. Because God is always leading us to change. Where is God convicting you that you need to change? And how are you trusting God to make that change? Instead of working harder to change yourself for God, how are you pushing more deeply into your trust in the Spirit that He'll make that change? So we're going to move into time response. I ask you to pray. Trust that the Spirit of God will... Just call you to faith and joy. And during this time, we're also going to take our offering. It's a chance for our members and regular attenders to give joyfully and sacrificially. Um, Funds the work of the gospel in this church and funds the work of the ministry. And so I encourage you to give joyfully and sacrificially. If you're a guest with us, there's a worship response card in your bulletin. We would love for you to fill that out and drop it in the basket when it comes around. We'd love to know you're here. And if you put your prayer request on there, then we'll pray with you and for you. We're going to share communion in a moment. Let me pray for us now as we go into a time of response. We'll share communion in a minute. Let's pray. Lord, you are the Father of all glory, the measure of all that is right, the source of all that is beautiful. And that's both inviting and alienating to us. Inviting because it's everything we want. Alienating because it's everything we're not. I pray, Lord, that you wouldn't allow the enemy to seal us away from you by feelings of shame or guilt or condemnation. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a true glimpse of ourselves, that we also wouldn't be puffed up in pride, measuring ourselves by our strength while ignoring our weaknesses, self-satisfied with our small accomplishments as if they were of any true significance. What I'm praying for, Lord, is the gift of humility for myself and for my friends. And that from that place of lowliness, humility, brokenness, dependence, we can look up with joy and receive the free gift of grace, unmerited, unreserved, unlimited love poured out on our lives to free us, to change us. 
Lord, I pray that we would be a people that, that, man, we go through every single day lit up by that love, being changed by that love, filled with hope by that love, not performing for God, but Lord, instead resting in you. It's your work. We thank you that you love us that much.